Jesse, last week's trip to Amish land was really something. What's the story today? Obsession and infatuation lead to a murder in a church, revealing a bizarre motive and a potential love triangle gone awry. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about love gone fatally wrong, whether it's psychotic exes, deadly double lives, or horrifying unrequited love. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. And as always, if you enjoy the show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app and help new people discover the show. And thanks as always for all of your amazing reviews. They touch our heart every single time. (laughs) (laughs) I'm feeling very emotional. We are like, guys, we, we probably mention this every episode. So if you're sick of it, I'm so sorry, but... But we only have yeah. like four more left, so they only yeah. Have I, I think this is the the fourth to the end countdown of our maternity episodes. So we are almost done. We are huge. We are emotional. We are awaiting these babies. So bear with us, okay, Andy. This one is kind of a weird story. It's it's a really interesting story, and it's definitely like you think it's one thing going in, and then it's not, and you kind of like get an idea of who the killer is at the beginning, but then you like delve into her psyche. So it's, it's going to be an interesting one. Um, And this was also a listener recommendation from Jamie M. So thanks so much, Jamie. Jamie also entered our giveaway by the time this airs um that giveaway will have been like six weeks ago (laughs) so thank you to everyone who joined our giveaway for the sweatshirt um andy has some fun things cooked up for our maternity leave so hopefully we'll do something else on instagram like that and and we can have more people join so i'm going to lead with my primary source (laughs) which happens about one in you know 60 episodes it's called Love Me or Else by Colin McAvoy and Lynn Olinoff, which is a husband and wife journalist duo. And I liked this book so much that we're actually going to be using another one of their books next week. That's awesome that they're a team. Yeah, I love that. I love it so much. Um, the Jane Bashara episode also was like a husband and wife journalist team. Um, and I think it's it's really nice, like when you can work with your spouse and also like it's clear that the like the incredible work that went into this book. So big fans. I know that Jamie said that they're actually friends of hers. So no Jamie, way. yeah, Jamie, tell them that they did a great job. Um, I loved using both of the books that I used um, for the next couple episodes. All right. I think without further ado, you know, Andy's totally in the dark on this one. I didn't give her even a taste of what the story is about. So (laughs) I'm really excited. I'm really excited. I'm like already biting my nails. (laughs) Okay, let's do this. Why wasn't the door locked? Judy Zellner, a 60-year-old grandmother of six, thought to herself on a chilly late January morning in 2008. The side door to the Trinity Evangelical Lutheran Church was always to be kept locked, 
even in a rural community as safe as Springfield Township in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. Hmm, she thought, maybe the pastor was in the building. Judy was there to clean the church, happy to volunteer for the congregation she had belonged to for the last 26 years. After grabbing her cleaning supplies, she went to the office to begin her work when she was confronted by a horrifying sight. Crumpled behind the desk lay the body of a woman soaked in a puddle of dark crimson blood. Strands of long brown hair mixed in the gruesome tableau. Judy's first thoughts flashed to what she learned watching CSI. Don't touch the body. Next, she called 911. As her phone rang, she had one more terrifying thought. What if the killer was still in the building? She ran outside as the operator answered and she screamed into the phone. Emergency medical services rushed to the spot, but they kind of assumed it must have been just, you know, an old woman who took a spill or something. Nothing nefarious as murder happened in churches, especially churches in quiet towns in good God-fearing country. But upon entering the church, it became abundantly clear that the devil had come to Trinity Evangelical that day. The woman had been shot. As the EMS paramedics lifted the woman onto the board, Judy cried, Oh my God, that's my friend Rhonda. Kind, gentle, pretty 42-year-old Rhonda Smith had been shot in cold blood at her place of worship in broad daylight. Who could possibly do such a thing, the community would ask, horrified at the very real possibility of it being one of their own flock. And at the heart of the crime was a motive that defied one of God's Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's pastor. Like (laughs) husband or pastor? (laughs) Pastor. You guys will see in the story. I kind of tweaked that one to fit my own purposes. Okay. (laughs) Through Judy Zellner, the police made an early identification of the interim church secretary, Rhonda Smith, who appeared to have been shot in the head and was just barely clinging to life as she was rushed to the hospital. What? She was alive? She was still alive, but just, just barely. The family was notified and the state troopers interviewed Judy, who stated Rhonda was a bright and popular woman who had been a member of the church for two years alongside her mother, Dorothy Smith. Judy did display some concerns about Rhonda's mental health. Rhonda struggled with bipolar disorder and depression. Rhonda had once shared with Judy that she was contemplating suicide. So the investigators began to consider that possibility. The only problem was, is that they couldn't find a gun anywhere. So it seems unlikely that she would have committed suicide and then hid the gun. No. Yeah. Not happening. (laughs) Not not really possible. No. (laughs) But Rhonda getting murdered also seemed extremely unlikely as the woman had absolutely no enemies and was almost universally beloved. Plus, nothing had been stolen from the church to indicate an interrupted burglary. So this was a real head scratcher. At the (laughs) hot... What? Is that a weird turn of phrase? It was just the way you delivered it. It was a real head scratcher. (laughs) Nathaniel says I'm getting more old timey. It's like the more, the more pregnant I get, the more old timey. I think it's like, I can't walk. It it hurts to like get up the stairs. So I'm like, Oh, (laughs) this is a real head head scratcher. scratcher. (laughs) Getting real crotchety in my, my old gestational age over here. 
Oh my God. Which, which every time I go to the doctor, the woman's like, it's a teaching like OB. So they're always like, and we're doing this monitor because this person is high risk because she's, well, you don't look like it, but, um, she's advanced maternal age. (laughs) And I'm like, it's fine. Like literally you guys do this every time. And they're like, no, but you look really, really good. We just want to tell you you look good. And I'm like, thank you. Thanks. I know. I'm really old. I'm old. Thank you. Geriatric. (laughs) I'm technically a geriatric pregnancy. You're correct. Just get this over with. (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) And it's always like these cute little college students. And they're so sweet. (laughs) It's so funny. Yeah. It it was really cute. Yeah. They have some great like um, teaching kids at the at the OB so if you guys are listening because I did tell one of them about the podcast love you really do you guys are adorable and very helpful and go into being an OB because you're all great at it (laughs) okay at the hospital where Rhonda was on life support troopers interviewed Jim and Dorothy who had had Rhonda over for dinner the night before and talked to her that very morning the parents were very very close to their daughter Rhonda they're just Super lovely people and very, very supportive, loving parents. The couple had actually driven by the church around 12.30 p.m. that afternoon on their way to lunch and spotted Rhonda's car in the lot. The grieving parents didn't know anything was amiss until they were notified by authorities that their only daughter had been shot. So shocking. I mean, can you imagine? She's working at the church you go to. No. It's so strange. It it would be like so out of left field for anyone to comprehend. The elderly couple were hoping against hope that their daughter would pull through despite a grim prognosis from the doctors. The troopers led Jim down a line of questioning regarding Rhonda's mental state, previous suicide attempts, and whether or not Rhonda owned a gun. Jim emphatically denied that Rhonda owned a gun, but admitted she had struggled with her bipolar. Then he said something that piqued the trooper's interest. I don't want them to find a gun. When the troopers asked him to explain, he clarified, I mean, I want them to find a gun later, but not at the church. I don't want a gun found down there at that church, but I I want a gun found. It took a second, but they realized what he meant. The sad father didn't want the gun found at the church because that would imply that Rhonda had killed herself and he couldn't bear the thought. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes yeah. sense. I think that they're kind of religious too. So it would just be like hard to imagine your baby doing that to themselves. But also I think in most religions, it's kind of frowned upon. Back at the station, the troopers wondered if it was possible that the Smiths, who had admitted to driving directly by the church, had stopped by to say hello, discovered their daughter dead by her own hand, and then removed the evidence so no one would know she committed suicide. Whoa, who thought that? The cops? Yeah, the cops were like, hmm, because of where she was shot, it was like she was shot over her ear, like on the right side. They're like, maybe it was a suicide. She has a history of suicide ideation and, you know, bipolar and depression. Maybe it was a suicide and seeing as like how he was so vehement about it, maybe they covered it up. So it seems like a stretch to me, but obviously we've heard crazier things happening on this show, you know? Yeah. It it was his comment is weird though. I see why the cops would like. It, their antennas that. went up. Yeah. Yeah. 
Shortly after their talk with the Smiths at the hospital, Rhonda was declared dead. Dorothy and Jim were devastated. While the investigators, including Trooper Stumpo, who would take the lead on the case, mulled over the possibility of suicide, they covered their bases by looking into Rhonda's dating history and interviewing more witnesses who had known her personally. After a respectful time period, they approached the Smiths to get more information about Rhonda's life. So Rhonda was the youngest of three children born to Jim and Dorothy, the only girl with older brothers, Perry and Gary. Oh my God. <laughs> we have like to have a names like Hall of Fame for siblings on this show because we've had some real winners. Robbie and Bobby on the Betty Lou Beats episode. Robbie and Bobby are the funniest because it's the same name. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that has to be number one for sibling names. <laughs> So Rhonda was a kind and caring little girl who loved animals and knew from the age of six that she wanted to be a teacher. After high school, she worked to save money to attend college. And by 1986, she was enrolled in Northampton Community College, making her the very first person in her family to enroll in higher education, which is quite the wow. feat. Mm -hmm. yep. Even more impressive was how tirelessly she tackled her goals. She worked around her classes and she took on the full responsibility of like paying for all of her college, paying off her loans on time. Within three years of her graduation from undergrad, she was only months away from earning her teaching certificate and she was already student teaching when signs began to emerge that something was dreadfully wrong. Rhonda began to suffer long bouts of insomnia that exacerbated strong feelings of paranoia and anxiety. She huh. began to believe that cameras were hidden in her apartment walls and faceless people were out to get her. After, huh. yeah, so she was having some serious mental breaks. Well, a, like a lot of the, the bipolar like mania um, comes on usually in your 20s. So, oh, really? yep. So you could live like a totally like feeling normal adolescence and uh, the symptoms will not reveal themselves until you're like in your early 20s. I mean, sometimes they come up in your teenage years too, but for a lot of people, it's like early adulthood. Crazy. Yep. So this is where like the bipolar revealed itself. After a handful of full mental breakdowns, Jim and Dorothy convinced Rhonda to come home so they could get her help. She had only been like three weeks away from graduation. Oh, no. Of a lifelong dream. It's so sad. Rhonda was institutionalized in November of 1991 and officially diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Though Rhonda learned how to manage her disorder, it seemed to rear its ugly head during times of stress. So three subsequent attempts to complete her teaching certificate were squashed. Oh, no. The career, yeah, it's just, it's super duper sad because she kept trying. I mean, she's a fighter for real. They even told the story about when she was born, how something went um, really wrong. I wasn't sure exactly what. Um, and they had to rush her to a different hospital to perform a surgery when she was only one day old and how she had pulled through. And when she was in the hospital on life support, her dad was like, you did it like before, like you can do it again, you know? Yeah. And she had been a fighter all her life despite her mental illness. So it was just, just devastating. She was just a really by everyone's account, like a lovely bright person, you know? With better medication, she had improved over the years, but hanging on to a full-time job for a long period proved difficult. 
so she ended up kind of bouncing around through jobs and she worked as a cashier or mostly as like a customer service type job. Though she always remained within five miles of her parents, Rhonda was very proud to be able to always live independently and always pay her rent on her own, which is more than I can say about a lot of people who don't have mental illness. Yep. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> you know? Two years prior to the shooting, Rhonda and her mother had discovered Trinity Evangelical Lutheran, where the younger woman was an instant hit. Though most of the congregation was older than Rhonda, it seemed to be like mostly like a senior citizen population. Okay. Um, she hit it off immediately with everyone, joining the choir, volunteering, and making fast friends. Pastor Shreves was aware of her bipolar disorder and often counseled Rhonda through her problems. Around Christmas 2007, about a month before the shooting, Rhonda had been out of work due to her mental illness and Pastor Shreves had been arranging for some of the more wealthy patrons of the church to donate to help her out. Okay. Which is super nice and what churches are for, man. What so yes, this, should be for, yeah. What they should be for, for sure. This is from Love Me or Else. It wasn't much, maybe a couple thousand dollars in total, but the gifts they gave Rhonda allowed her to pay her rent, electric, and phone bills. Rhonda was extremely grateful for the assistance from the church, which had already helped her overcome so many difficulties in her life. Rhonda asked Shreves whether she could stand up at the next service and thank the congregation for their generosity, and he agreed. This is what a church is, he thought. It's helping others and giving thanks. And so during a Sunday morning service in January 2008, just weeks before her death, Rhonda stood up in front of the entire congregation and thanked them for their moral, spiritual, and financial assistance. She spoke about her bipolar disorder, how difficult her life could be, and how much she appreciated their understanding and support. She thanked them all, especially the pastor, and expressed how much better it made her feel to know she had friends she could truly count on. You helped me out, Rhonda put it simply. I was sick and you helped me. So the investigators decided to turn to Pastor Shreves to shed light on his relationship with Rhonda and if he noticed that she had any enemies within the tight-knit church community. Pastor Gregory Shreves was a handsome, six-foot-tall, 56-year-old former golf pro and PGA director who had answered a calling for a life of ministry when he was already in middle age. That's like an interesting career switch. Yeah. <laughs> so now, strange. Such a strange thing. But hey, when the calling hits, I guess it hits. That's like a reverse um, middle age crisis. Like yeah. most people like dump their wife, get a young girlfriend, <laughs> buy a sports car. And he's like, I think I'm going to be a minister. <laughs> yeah. He's like, he has the epiphany in the same way, like on the golf course. And it's like... <laughs> I'm going to go into church. Yeah. <laughs> uh, now, with more blonde than gray in his hair, he looked younger than his years and still very much the golf pro he had been in his youth. After graduating from the Lutheran Theology Seminary in Philadelphia, the small church in Springfield Township, Bucks County, was his first assignment. The Trinity Church had been established way back in 1751. Wow. Originally built as a log cabin that doubled as both church and schoolhouse. Wow. It's so cool. Um, he was very fond of saying that the church predated the country. 
So yeah, he was definitely attracted to that super long history and the passionate congregation. I mean, when he joined, there was already people like Judy Zellner, who I said was with the church for like 26 years. So he was joining a very established congregation. Now, three years later, he felt rocked to the core at the atrocity that had occurred to one of his flock. When questioned by the troopers about who in the congregation may have harbored ill will towards Rhonda, Pastor Shreves could offer no clear suspects. However, when questioned if any of his congregants displayed erratic behavior, he quickly named 65-year-old Mary Jane Fonder as someone who had stalking tendencies. Mary Jane Fonder. I know it sounds innocent. Might be. Might not be. Old MJ. (laughs) Yeah. Mary Jane Fonder was a single senior citizen woman who lived with her brother and was deeply involved at the church, though not very popular due to her odd and off-putting behavior. Pastor Shreves had met her at a funeral when he first began to minister to Trinity's community, and the woman seemed to form an immediate attachment for him. After several uncomfortable counseling sessions where Mary Jane showed Pastor Shreves pictures of herself in her youth and largely rambled on about her past, one day she said, you can't deny what's going on between us. Shreves was shocked. I mean, he was shocked just because it had never seemed even like remotely romantic or sexual between them at all. Yeah. So that shocked him. But also like he is a fairly good looking guy. He's still like, you know, 56 for men can be on that edge of like still looking young, you know? Yep. And like no offense to Mary Jane or maybe offense to Mary Jane, but she's 65, but she looks like 85. Yeah. Okay. Like she full on looks like a grandma for real. Like I was like really surprised because my mom is almost 67. Mom's a babe. And I was like, I can't believe this woman is younger than my mom because she looks like a full on like, like Nana toad. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) So, I mean, I don't think it was about like their looks, but she was like 10 years older than him too. So it was like, he was counseling what he thought was like this nice little old lady. And all of a sudden she's like, you can't deny what's going on between us. And he's like, what? What is going on between us? (laughs) Yeah. And usually women aren't that creepy. Like men, you can always count on no matter how old they are to be creepy. Yeah. Yeah. But like usually women get to a certain age and they're like, Oh, he's like a, you know, like my son's age, you know? Yeah. 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 I mean, cause she's already gone through like menopause and shit, right? Oh, for sure. For sure. At 65, for sure. For sure. So yeah, she, he had like no idea that she had this crush on him. So he put an end to that particular counseling session and he began to set up better boundaries between them. And he even went as far to report the statement to the church council, which is kind of like their version of churchy HR, yeah. just in case anything ever came up to be safe, you know? Yeah. Yep. 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 Smart. When Mary Jane began to leave long rambling phone messages on his home phone and church answering machine, he reported those as well. For months and months, she would call almost daily. Ugh. Uh Uh-huh. And when he blocked her home phone number, she started using her cell phone to get through. 
Okay, she's a creeper. Such a creeper. Most alarmingly, he discovered food regularly appearing in his freezer or on his doorstep, like at his house. Living in such a safe community, he had never bothered to lock the door. Now he started locking the windows and the door, and he confronted Mary Jane about the mysterious so-called kindnesses that she was doing for him. And as expected, she was totally surprised that he wasn't like so pleased. She completely admitted that she was like making him food and then going and putting it in his freezer at his house. Okay, that is like terrifying. That is so, (laughs) so terrifying. Also, I'd be scared to eat the food. No shit. (laughs) That's so weird. And so after he like locked up his house, she kept leaving stuff like on his porch. So he was like trying to get her to get the picture so he wouldn't bring it in. He would just like not touch it and let the food like just rot on his porch to like prove a point. And when Mary Jane learned this, she left yet another message for him. But this time he said it was like her total tone changed. Like she always like. She mad. Yeah, she always displayed herself as like a nice, like little church lady. This time he said she had like this like demon-like tone and was like, how can you do this to me? You're so ungrateful. Somebody's trying to take care of you and you're snubbing them. So he is like getting real scared and he has to stand up like at church every week and she's like volunteering and she's in the choir. Uh, So like he's in this terrible position yeah, because I mean, but that's what happens when you're a public figure, like uh-huh. when you're a pastor or a minister, and and I'm sure, I'm sure that, I mean, I guess if he's like a charming, good-looking one, I'm sure he gets it a little bit more than like other, you know. Yeah, he said like he knew, like they talked to it about it in the seminary because a lot of these guys are like really cute, especially like little young guys starting out, you know. Yeah, and they're like people you have a really close spiritual relationship with your congregation and they trust you this sort of you know trust and intimacy does foster feelings infatuation Mm -hmm. and passion yeah exactly that's why exactly he you know reported to the church council so early is because they're prepared for this sort of thing yeah yeah so yeah I guess this is not entirely unexpected it's just really weird. So he said that the whole situation finally came to a breaking point one Sunday when Mary Jane called at around 1030 at night. So according to the book, he was not accustomed to calls at that hour, even from her. But because it was so late, he was worried that it could be some sort of emergency. So he answered it and he found that it was just her once again, leaving one of her long (laughs) rambling messages. I was to say, is she like breathing into the phone? Like, (laughs) (sighs) 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 did you get the deviled eggs that I left on your porch? (laughs) Tuna noodle casserole, heat the oven to 400. I love my kindnesses for you. I left them on the porch. Oh, my kindness is so wet for you right now. <laughs> too far, Jesse. Too, too far. far. Okay, the line was there, and I went boop right over it. Boop, boop, boop. Bunny, Bunny hop. hop. <laughs> um, 
Yeah. So this was like the breaking point. Fed up, Shreves yelled into the phone, Mary Jane, don't call here anymore. In fact, I don't know if I can be your pastor. Maybe you need to find another church. I just can't pastor you. At first, there was nothing but silence on the other end. Then all of a sudden, Mary Jane launched into an angry tirade against the pastor, much as she did after he refused to accept her groceries. When reflecting back on the call later, Shreves could not recall exactly what Mary Jane had said, but he remembered her voice perfectly. It was that same evil-sounding voice as the last time she became angry, except this time with a touch of nervousness and restlessness as well, like this totally unhinged, yeah, pure emotion. The calls became, yeah, bad shit. (sighs) The calls became slightly less frequent after that, but Shreves was deeply disturbed. (laughs) frequent it should be zero it should be really zero i also i'm like your church council did like sweet f all to help you because he was like hey guys she keeps calling can you do anything and they're like nope just you got to deal with it it's like it's like every like board of executives ever to any woman that's complained about it it's like just toughen up there pastor greg This, this guy keeps grabbing my ass. <laughs> like, well, maybe you shouldn't walk by them in that skirt. <laughs> yeah. Maybe you shouldn't have an ass. <laughs> have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about that? Maybe it's you having the ass, not him having the hand. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, he is real freaked out. So, of course, when they're talking about this, he's like, Look, I don't know if she had some particular beef with Rhonda, but she's weird, yo. You know, check her out. So the police wisely decided to follow up on this lead. First, they stopped by Mary Jane's house and were told by her brother, also named Ed like her father. There's like four Eds in this family uh, that she was not home. Ed seemed truthful, but he was nervous about letting the men see the inside of the home. It they didn't, orders. Yes, exactly. How did you guess that? Wow, you are a mind reader. <laughs> oh, I love me some hoarders. <laughs> oh, yeah, this is like <laughs> real bad hoarders too. So, yes, the troopers would come to understand that it wasn't like there was a body in there or anything, or at least a human body. It was just that they were horrific they hoarders. Find. Yeah, it was like dead dog in the freezer hoarders ew like legit they had a dead legit. dog in the fridge? Why? yeah well so <laughs> the dead dog comes into play later on in the story so i'll bring it up then so that might have been covering up some evidence but it's also like you know the type of hoarders that are like don't get rid of anything so they put like like their pets bodies in the freezer it no. might have <laughs> I don't know those types. Wait, you haven't seen the TLC show Hoarders where they're like. I have, but I've never seen them pull a fucking dead animal out of the fridge. Oh my God. They like a lot of times they're like, this is the 18th cat corpse we found today. You haven't seen those episodes. (laughs) They're like, there's 62 cats in here. We just found one eating another one. I swear to God, you guys, like my old school hoarders from like when I was in college episodes were like, they have to get hazmat suits because all the pets are like going cannibalistic on the the other cat corpses. Gross. It's really gross. Yeah. I mean, hoarders is always gross, but when there was like 
pet corpses. That was like the line. That was it. That was it. Like how bad does your house have to get that you don't know your pet died? But I guess that your your current pet is eating your old pet. (laughs) That's how they they gain their strength. (laughs) Oh my God. Uh, Yeah. So we'll return. We'll circle back to the dog corpse in the freezer later. Great. <laughs> Look forward to that guy. It's just planting that little, that little excitement, that appetizer in there. So they told Ed to have Mary Jane call them. And they also left a message on her cell phone. And they began digging into the strange woman's past. First, they discovered that state records showed that Mary Jane owned a gun, a 38 caliber Rossi revolver purchased in December of 1994. The police would later discover through the autopsy that this weapon matched the caliber of bullets found inside Rhonda Smith. This is why we need to have gun reform because every yeah. gun should be registered to someone so that they can trace this shit. It's so it was so easy to look this yeah. up. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Great. Next, they discovered through church phone records that Mary Jane had called the church three times just two days before Rhonda was murdered, and it seemed likely that Rhonda answered those calls. Okay. Those two facts paired with the details of how she was stalking the pastor made Mary Jane a very compelling suspect indeed. But first, the police had to officially rule out suicide, which they did only hours later when the coroner revealed that, number one, Rhonda had been shot twice in the head. And even though the first time appeared to be like non-fatally, it was still like into her scalp. And then the second one was above her right ear. So it's like possible that she could have maybe done it. But if you shoot yourself in the scalp, you're pretty much piecing out after that, you know? Yeah, yeah. Like it would take a lot of fortitude to keep going. Even Uh, like Taunch and the other dude from the church. They couldn't do it. Yeah. They they couldn't do it. They shot themselves once and then it was like. Yeah, like Taunch tried and he couldn't even, like he couldn't get the the gun back, you know, because he was like shot in the face. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. And even more importantly, was number two, the coroner said that based on the stippling or small round um, gunpowder marks on Rhonda's face and body, she could definitely ascertain that Rhonda had been shot from an intermediate distance away, approximately three to four feet. So obviously she couldn't have shot herself from three to four feet away. That'd be difficult. You'd have to have some go-go gadget arms for that one. Um, additionally, they also looked into her parents' alibi and they pulled security footage from the Red Robin restaurant that they were eating in. And they did not look like people who had just covered up a suicide and found out their only baby daughter was dead. They just looked like normal people going about their day, ordering food and enjoying it, you know, yeah, exactly. So they didn't look like anything had happened. They weren't behaving weirdly. So they were like, that was a kind of a crazy theory. So we have to actually look at this as a homicide now. So obviously, Mary Jane Fonder's looking kind of good for the homicide at this point, especially when detectives discover that she had been the prime suspect in her elderly father's disappearance back in 1993. Did she eat him? Maybe they never found the body. I said that as creepy as possible. <laughs> she put him in the freezer. <laughs> well, they looked in the freezer. That's how they found the dog. 
Okay. <laughs> so he wasn't there. Okay. So let's go back and talk about who exactly Mary Jane Fonda is. Oh, God. I, I bet you are so excited about this. Mary Jane was born July 5th, 1942, the youngest of two children of Edward and Alice Fonder in Philadelphia. Her father was a machinist and her mother a proofreader at the Chilton Publishing Company. Despite a mostly happy and stable childhood, Mary Jane began displaying emotional problems as early as eight years old when she had her first nervous breakdown. Mary Jane had trouble relating to her peers and attempted suicide at age 16 following a breakup by overdosing on anti-anxiety medication. Her mother discovered her in the nick of time and Mary Jane survived and was institutionalized at a mental hospital for a month following the suicide attempt. Though the mental hospital had been actually pretty good for her, it further drove her away from her peers and she dropped out of high school. At 26, she moved out of her parents' home and worked a string of jobs, the longest as a card punch operator at a publishing company that manufactured Bibles, but also at Wanamaker's, a famous Philly department store. Mary Jane did not start dating until she was in her late 30s after that one high school attempt. And though she craved companionship, she lacked the ability to connect with potential dates. So she only had two relationships of any note by the time she was in her 60s. And they had never materialized into anything longer term. Yeah. Her parents had always maintained a summer home in Springfield Township, which is where our story takes place, and moved there permanently after retiring in 1981. Mary Jane followed in 1987 to take care of them. Both parents were having health issues by then that had only worsened as the years went by. In 1992, severe circulation issues resulted in Alice requiring amputation of the entire leg from the hip down. And even worse, complications from the surgery put Alice into a coma. Yeah, no bueno. And she, she not fit? En- no, she's not fit. Yeah, it was... It was they she had a whole trove of issues, but okay. this is the one unfortunately that ended up killing her. So she passed away in September of the same year. Both Mary Jane and Father Ed were devastated by the loss and they began to turn on one another in their grief. Father and daughter fought incessantly, exacerbated by some visiting cousins who insinuated to Ed that his daughter was an ungrateful and negligent caretaker. It caused a deep rift in the family that wasn't patched up before Ed went missing only a few weeks later when Mary Jane claimed on August 26, 1993, that she woke up at 7 a.m. and prepared breakfast for her father. Afterwards, she went back to bed and before drifting off, heard her father open the front door. She assumed he was going out to collect the newspaper. However, when she awoke at 11 a.m., the elderly and very infirm man was nowhere to be found. She called the police and search ensued that lasted for days, including with bloodhounds and helicopters. I mean, they were really looking for this guy who seemed extremely unlikely to have gone very far. Okay. Rumors abounded about Mary Jane being the architect of her father's demise because one of the garbage men had made a comment that the Fonder's trash was especially heavy and smelly on the day of Ed Fonder's disappearance. 
all, did she call the cops the same day? Like, she did call the cops the same day she said he went missing. But got it. I don't know if at this point her brother was living with her or not. It wasn't very clear. So I don't know if there was anyone who could back her up about it, it, where he went. Because she wasn't working. He's not working. No one was seeing them, you know? Yep. All agreed that it seemed unlikely that the sick old man would just walk out the door. And his doctor said that he would not live like days without his medications. And all of his medications were at the home. So it was highly suspect. Springfield Township's assistant police chief, Kim Triol, strongly suspected Mary Jane of foul play, but ultimately could not prove it. Mary Jane acted suspiciously on several occasions and seemed close to confession one day when she said, yeah, I don't think I did anything to my pop. I mean, I swear to God, I don't think I did. She then paused and continued, maybe the drugs did something. Maybe I don't remember. Huh, bitch? Yeah, that's what I would say if I was that cop. I'd be like, excuse me? You don't think you killed him? Maybe the drugs? It was maybe the drugs? So Kim did- Are you at Coachella? Like, what? Like, are you at Burning Man, m'lady? Maybe it was the drugs. It might be the drugs. Jeez Louise. Oh, these people. Uh Uh-huh. So, of course, at this point, Kim knew that she had been on a bunch of, she was on, like, a lot of anti-anxiety, depression medication stuff, and it was, like, a weird cocktail of stuff. And she thought that this was going to be the opening to a confession, so she stopped Mary Jane and Mirandized her right then and there. But when she did this, Mary Jane, who is a very lonely, lonely woman, like, kind of weirdly assumed that the police officer was like her friend that she'd been like coming to do all these interviews because they were friendly with each other. So when Kim actually (laughs) Mirandized her, she all of a sudden grew irate and understood that like, you know, she was a suspect and she kicked um, officer Triel out of her home. After that, she refused to cooperate with the police any longer. Like she wouldn't, they asked her to take a polygraph. She wouldn't do it. She got some attorneys involved. And the case lingered until Kim Triel left the force in June 1994. Ed Fonder's disappearance, the only open case on her docket. She told the authors McAvoy and Olenoff that she carries that weight like a burden. And she to this day has no closure. Because you're so close, you know it, but you, she couldn't prove it. Following her father's disappearance, Mary Jane didn't seem to get any saner. When she was fired from Denny's after increasingly erratic behavior, she responded by threatening the manager with a gun. Oh. Normal. Normal. The very same gun purchased in 1994 that now figured prominently in a murder case. The investigators collected all condolence letters from the Smiths and the church to see if they turned up interesting notes that could point to a suspect, which is super smart. I never thought about that, but like, it's so interesting to collect the condolence letters to see if anyone wrote anything off-putting, you know? Yeah. Mary Jane had left rambling notes to not only Rhonda's parents, but also the church and the choir directors, the Wasakis. Here is what she said in these condolence notes. I have to like really specify that these are like 
the greeting cards that are usually like the good Lord has called her back and like, you know, blessed her. And like the, like, we're so sad for you. These are like those Hallmark cards and she's writing this stuff in it. So this was to um, Rhonda's parents. I am so grateful that so many of our church loved and got to know Rhonda so well. She was swell and so eager to help Pastor Greg. We all loved our pastor as he was so kind to us all. He always had a cheering committee. Many times we took turns helping him, so many of us at different times. He helped so many of us. Judy Zellner and he were very kind to me too in 2006 when my world was falling apart. I was too, an avid admirer of his always. Their daughter just died. This goes on. That's one wonderful church. Once again, I was on my way. The pastor has been there for young and old alike. He's always had a nice way with women. He especially likes the little children. He loves to joke and laugh with people. TLC is a generally happy church. That should have been me in the ground instead of Rhonda. Many of us would have gladly been put in her place. She had much to live for. This never should have happened. Anyone could have been there that day volunteering. Rhonda was always so nice to me. We all had such a good time at the prime timers, Mary Jane wrote, referring to the church's senior citizens group. How weird is that? So weird. If I were her parents, I'd be like, who is this freak show? Nut job. Mm-hmm. So then this is what she wrote to the church and then to the choir directors. To members of Trinity, especially the Trinity choir members who loved Miss Rhonda so dearly, no words can convey how sad I am for you all. Always sweet and nice when she spoke to me. I barely got to know her until I joined the Trinity Choir around Christmas time. We all had such a good time singing together. I knew then that Rhonda had problems too, and you were all helping her. I wish I could trade places with her now, and that she could be alive instead of me, the card continued. She did not deserve such a terrible end, nor her loved ones this catastrophe. The card to the Wasakis was much the same. I was wondering what you all did for Rhonda. I can't say one bad thing about her. I did see, though, how sweet and very affectionate she was with everyone. No wonder she was so well-loved. When we spoke on many occasions, she appeared very happy to see me or speak with me at those times. Yes, I knew Rhonda was ill that way, it continued. Disorders of the mind are terrible to deal with. In 2001, the same with me. We were on Suffering Street big time, high doses of medications to balance our chemistry, minds and bodies. I can appreciate Rhonda's problems. Last fall, I had another health and chemistry problem, which needed attention. I had no choice but to get rest and deal with it. Everybody loves Pastor Greg, dot, dot, dot. He has helped plenty of us and has made many friends. Those other ladies and Rhonda were lucky to have you directing their lives. I worked with doctors and treatments outside the church, but always managed to get fixed up. The card ended with this freak and horrendous act on Rhonda. No Christian could have done such a thing. I regret that it happened in our church or to her or anyone else that might have been in the office that day. God help us all. Mary Jane Fonder. Oh, my God. Dude, you like number one, even if this was even a little bit normal, you don't talk about yourself in a condolence card with specific dates. Back in 2001, I also had a mental breakdown. 
Yeah. You're having a mental breakdown right now. Mm-hmm. This is not your therapy session. This is some somebody's friend and daughter were murdered. It's a little bit different. Wow. When the police finally interviewed Mary Jane, she claimed she spoke to Rhonda on those phone calls to seek out a church directory that Rhonda failed to provide her with. She noted that she was surprised that Rhonda had been offered the interim church secretary position when she herself had been turned down for the role in the past. On the day of the shooting, Mary Jane explained that she left her house at 5 minutes to 11 a.m. for a hair appointment at 11.30 a.m. And then she went shopping at Joanne Fabrics and was home by 3. This certainly aroused the trooper's suspicions as 5 minutes to 11 was exactly the time the computer forensic expert had estimated that Rhonda was shot based on when her internet activity in the church office had abruptly stopped. The time of death had also not been publicized. It was interesting that Mary Jane had mentioned it so precisely. When asked about her gun, Mary Jane claimed that she had simply thrown it away. The exchange went as follows. This is from Love Me or Else. We've been checking, and according to state records, you own a gun, Egan said. Where's your gun? Oh, I threw that away a long time ago, she answered quickly. I got rid of it. What do you mean you got rid of it, Stumpo asked. I just threw it out somewhere, she said. I threw it out on the, you know, side of the road or in the woods. The troopers were dumbstruck. (laughs) (laughs) What? They were like, what? They had never heard of anyone just throwing away a gun. They didn't believe her. Well, Mary Jane, aren't you concerned that someone could find that gun? Stumpo asked, like a child could find that gun on the side of the road. Well, I threw it in a lake, some lake somewhere, she said. I threw it in Lake Nakamixon, somewhere in the deep end down by the boat docks. Mary Jane claimed she got rid of the gun because she had been having problems with a woman at the Denny's where she used to work. During an unemployment hearing after losing her job there, she'd been accused of threatening her former manager, Diane Anderson, with a gun. Mary Jane explained, she had the gun in her car during that hearing. She said, under the driver's seat, Mary Jane claimed she was so nervous that police would find the gun and believe she wanted to hurt Diane that she threw it away that very day. Like, why does this woman, like, this woman should not be able to own a gun? Oh, 100%. 100%. You know, like, they need to do mental health checks. She'd been institutionalized. She was on extraordinary amounts of of mood-altering medication, you know? Whoa. hmm So she said that she had fired the gun just once. After her father disappeared, a newspaper article had come out in the Philadelphia Inquirer that made her look like a suspect, she said. The portrayal upset her greatly, and she was so depressed that she began contemplating suicide. To test the gun, she had fired it into her yard, but its loud sound had scared her. The troopers still didn't believe Mary Jane's explanation about where her gun was. They thought she still had it, but they doubted she would admit the truth now. Plus, they were doing- they're not going to be able to find it in their fucking house. Yeah, definitely not. Oh, God. Hoarders (laughs) must be like an investigatory nightmare. Oh, my God. Gross. Yeah, they were also, um, they had like caught her at the church so they could just like grab her for the interview. So this wasn't like the best place for like a extended interrogation at this point, you know? Of course, yeah. 
Besides, Mary Jane was already off on another topic. She started to tell the troopers about how on the Sunday before Rhonda died, she had stood up in front of the congregation to thank the group for the financial assistance they had provided to her. Nobody told me this was going on, she said, her voice strained. No one asked me to help. Oh. Yep. So the troopers... She's mad. The troopers followed up on her arrival at the salon and the time it would have taken to drive from the church to the hair salon. There was absolutely more than enough time to kill Rhonda and make it there by the time she arrived. Um, She also wore a wig and apparently she had like left her wig at the salon when she got her natural hair done. And so they took the wig to test for gunpowder um, but it didn't, I don't think anything like turned up. It there wasn't anything that was overwhelming. So they just like had her wig. They use it like in a different <laughs> interview. They're like, we have your wig. She's like, <laughs> my wig, you have my wig. <laughs> and they're like, we have your wig. Do you know what that means? And she's like, no, can I have a bash? <laughs> she's like, which wig? Which wig? And, um, they're like, yeah, we're testing it for gunpowder. And she's like, well, you won't find any on it. Cause I didn't kill anyone. Yeah. She gets real, real cray. Um, <laughs> so, you know, this obviously seems like she could have absolutely killed Rhonda based on the time frame it takes to get from the church, to the hair salon, et cetera. Furthermore, she had claimed that her brother could attest to exactly when she left the home. And he told investigators that he couldn't recall at all when his sister left the house that day. So he's like, I don't know what she told you, but I I didn't even notice when she left. On follow-up interviews, they... <laughs> <laughs> Once again, because he can't see <laughs> anything he's like, I can't see, I don't can't see the door <laughs> from my sitting chair, you know? Oh um So, yeah, so she, so they ended up like following up with interviews where they continued to prod her about Rhonda's relationship with the church versus her own experience, because that seemed to be the sore point, how Rhonda was treated. She spewed vitriol regarding Rhonda's warm welcome, financial support, (gasps) and close relationship with Pastor Shreve's. And she also discussed an occasion where she discovered a birthday party being held in Rhonda's honor that she was excluded from, which would have been benign in and of itself. But everyone at the church was like, no, we didn't have, we didn't throw Rhonda a party. This was all in her head. Weird. Yeah. So it was like this story where she felt like she drove by the church and there was like a bunch of cars in it and she saw Rhonda's car and she knew it was Rhonda's birthday. So she just decided in her head that they were all throwing a party she wasn't invited to. Yep, 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 yep. Mary Jane seemed especially frustrated that the church offered Rhonda money to live in a nice apartment when she too had mental health issues but was forced to live with her hoarder brother because no one just gave her money. Yeah. So also they helped her out like the one time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. She said she had looked into moving into Rhonda's apartment complex. That's real single white female over here. But it was too expensive. So they were like, well, how did Rhonda afford it? She's like, I guess the church just gave her money. A motive began to emerge. Supreme jealousy. And it seemed to the investigators that discovering via phone that Rhonda had also been offered the temporary secretarial position that she had coveted, she had just snapped. 
Oh my God. What I a mean, Luna. Crazy. At one point in the interview, Mary Jane insinuated that Pastor Shreves and Rhonda may have had a secret relationship almost hysterically listing Rhonda's positive attributes, how pretty, young, attractive, warm, and approachable she was as reasons why he might have been involved with her. She quickly followed up that though Pastor Shreves was somewhat of a ladies' man, she herself had never been involved with him, despite what anyone else would say. Um, no one would say that. <laughs> There's also zero evidence that Shreves was ever romantically involved with any one of his congregation and certainly not Rhonda or heaven forbid Mary Jane. (laughs) This is what's crazy about this case is that when I got into it, like I really thought this was going to be like a love triangle situation, but no one was actually having a love affair at all. It was all just obsession and infatuation in Mary Jane's head. Yep. Yep. And this poor pastor is just doing his job, like, by the sounds of it, pretty well. And now he's completely embroiled in this scandal. Like, every headline about this murder mentioned him, like, mentioned he was the reason for it. Like, even, okay, so the book, here's the book. It's called Love Me or Else. It says the true story of a devoted pastor of fatal jealousy and the murder that rocked a small town. Sometimes love is the deadliest sin of all. And then... There's a picture of the pastor on the cover. And it's like this poor guy just doing his job. And even the book about it's like, look at him. You know who caused this murder? This hot piece of hunk. Just a clip. Just a little clip. Little clip art right there. And MJ isn't on there? uh, She's in the clouds here. Oh my God, that's her? That's her. You are lying in like the satanic red clouds. <laughs> the satanic red clouds. I know the cover of the uh, like mass market paper book is something else. And I also know because I know Jamie is friends with the authors. Yeah. <laughs> Andy just looked her up. Did I get it right? <gasps> Nana Toad, right? Nana Toad. Whoa. Yeah. Whoa. But that's why I'm saying, like, <laughs> it's not like anyone was thinking that this woman was having some hot, sexy affair, you know? Whoa, this is crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this is crazy. So this poor guy is like, usually like these church episodes have some like fanatical religious thing. And there's always like the hypocritical, like church person having an affair. This is like, yeah. has, it just takes place at a church it has nothing to do with religion. It's all in her head. All in her head. Yup. All in her big toad head. <laughs> yep. Okay. So even this, her behavior gets even weirder. How? In the midst of the investigation, Mary Jane Fonder makes a house call to Rhonda's parents, the Smiths, Uh, foisting an apple pie upon them and overstaying her welcome. After exchanging some very brief pleasantries about Rhonda, then Mary Jane launched into a laundry list of all of the problems in her life, including the deplorable state of her home. So she, I think she's a hoarder too, but she was kept blaming her brother for it. Of course. And she mentioned that she had actually stopped by Rhonda's apartment complex to check out an apartment the day before Rhonda died. 
So it makes me think that she either was going to like maybe kill Rhonda at her home the day before and couldn't get a clear shot or like she was just stalking her and she was worried now with the investigation that somebody was going to say that they saw her there. So she was trying to lay the groundwork for a feasible excuse about why she was there. Yep. So of course, Rhonda's parents thought that was odd. Um, And then kind Dorothy, Rhonda's mother, noticed that Mary Jane was wearing an odd pair of damaged rubber shoes. They're like similar to like low galoshes. And I I knew you were going to say galoshes. (laughs) Yeah, they're kind of like, but like, like Dansko galoshes almost like they're not going high. Like Um, Crocs? Kind of, but like, like not like new. They were like really damaged and worn looking. And it was very off-putting. Even Jim noticed them. And so Dorothy was like, they were having these very weird conversations. Dorothy was like, I think she was complaining about the shoes too. And she's like, well, do you need a pair of shoes? Like we have some of Rhonda's shoes here and she's obviously not going to use them. So we'll, you know, if they fit you, you can have them. Being like the really nice, kind person that she was. And this... Bitch says, yes, please. I would love Rhonda's shoes. Then like tries on two pairs and is like strutting around the woman she's killed's parents' house with the dead woman's shoes on being like, I love these. They fit great. They're amazing. Thank you. What a freak. It's unfathomable. Not only that, but she ended up staying over two hours. Could you imagine, like, okay, this is why I don't let anyone in my house ever. And like, I'm not even going to answer the phone if you don't text me first to tell me you're going to call, let alone let you in my house. And then to have somebody show up at your house and stay for two, more than two hours. Insane. Insane. So she finally left and the Smiths were like, what the fuck was that? And Jim was like, do not eat that pie. Nobody should eat that pie. <laughs> Stay away from the pie. That was my next question. They did not eat the pie. Well, Dorothy was very sweet. She was like, I couldn't bear to throw it out. So I put it in the freezer, but we never touched it. Yeah. How long? I don't know. They didn't say. Just yeah. So also during this time, while she's being investigated, Mary Jane also keeps up her harassing phone calls to Shreve's. Until finally a church council member intervenes and is like, you will be asked to go to a different church if you keep calling him. Jesus. Uh-huh. Catch a hint. Yeah, catch a hint. Also, he, because of like how the police were questioning him about her, he got the hint that she was probably the killer at this point. So he's like yeah. real freaked out. Like before it was unsettling. Now he's like, she's a murderer and she's still obsessed with me. Can please somebody yeah. do something about this? Yeah. At this point, Trooper Stumpo and Egan felt like they had a pile of circumstantial evidence, but they were sorely lacking in physical evidence. They don't have the gun, you know? They don't have any hard evidence. So they obtained a search warrant for Mary Jane's car, and after towing it from the church parking lot, they sent it to be processed to see what would come back. On a cold, windy afternoon on March 29th, more than two months since the murder occurred, a miracle happened. 
Well, eight-year-old Garrett Silsbury and his dad, Doug, were fishing in Lake Nakamixon. Garrett found a practically pristine 38 caliber Rossi revolver. In the water? In the water. Oh, my God. Like, one in a million. Also, it's so cold in Pennsylvania in March. Like, it's a miracle that they were out fishing, you know, and found it. But how did he find it? I, he was, like, futzing around in, like, the marshy, like, edge of the lake, and he found it. So he, can you imagine your eight-year-old, too? His dad was fishing in a different part, and the eight-year-old walks over and is like, Dad, look what I found. And he's like, oh, my God, that is a loaded weapon. And, like, this guy actually was, like, he's a big, the, the dad is a big, like, Second Amendment rights guy. And so he was like, you know, we do gun safety training really early because he's one of those people that's like, I believe in the Second Amendment, so I believe that there needs to be better gun training and you need to teach your yeah. kids how to handle guns and he's very responsible yeah. gun owner so he was like holy shit you know better than to touch that like you should have just come and yelled for me you know because the kid's like holding a loaded weapon oh my god oh wouldn't your your heart would explode out of your chest if that was your kid wouldn't it jesus yeah uh-huh so it was fully loaded like no safety on whatever so he he got it you know he unloaded it and he turned it over to the police right away. Extremely responsible. The troopers entered the serial number into the National Crime Information Center and bingo, bango, they had a match. Do you know who it matched to? Bingo, bango, Mary Django. <laughs> wow, that was great. I'm so glad I said bingo, bango now. <laughs> you really just <laughs> came through on that one. <laughs> oh my God, this loon. I... No, it was it, the serial number. It was it was a perfect match. It was Mary Jane's gun. I mean, this is incredible good luck. It's incredible good luck. Why wouldn't they have just gone the cops? Because that's the lake she said she put it in, right? Yeah, but she was so wishy-washy about it. I think that they did actually do like an initial search, but I don't think it was where she said it was. Like she said it was like in okay. the deep end near the boat docks. And clearly that wasn't where it was because a kid wouldn't have been able to fish it out of the lake then. Yeah, I mean, unless it moved. But the, I mean, a, a gun is not exactly like seaworthy. It's not like it's going to float. All the way. It's not buoyant. It's not. It's not buoyant. It's not gonna. It's not gonna be like me. I'd like to high... swim over there for a little while. A fish moved it. <laughs> yeah. No. Oh my god. So yeah, and even so, they told the the troopers exactly where they found the gun. The troopers went back the next day, and they found some empty shell casings as well. So they really scored with this one. So given the gun now, that gave the troopers enough physical evidence to arrest Mary Jane. And they did so once again in the church parking lot on April 1st, 2008. April fools on you, old gal. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. It's getting real now. After her arrest, the troopers found an innocuous-looking Springer Spaniel-themed pocket calendar in her purse. And it had a bunch of, like, weird writings in it. Under January 17th were the words Rhonda's birthday, which nobody knew why she would know that. 
from the 23rd to the 26th, it said someone called from church to tell me of incident. Under February 25th, the day the troopers interviewed Mary Jane for four hours, she wrote, Dublin SP, they say they have wig, tried to make me confess. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Like, why are you writing that in your calendar? And the most weird was on January 23rd, she wrote in big capital letters, Rhonda murdered. Like, is that your to-do? Or you're just commemorating the date? She's like, check. Check check that one off the to-do list. They're like, in the book, they describe the Springer Spaniel. They're like, an innocuous looking Springer Spaniel with its head down on its paws and its rump in the air looking playfully at the camera. (laughs) You gotta love true crime books, man. They give you the... Oh my God. Uh Yeah, so I don't know if... These writings are any sort of smoking gun, but they are fucking weird as shit. Yeah. After her arrest, they took Mary Jane to the station where she was processed, booked, and questioned some more. While taking her mugshot, the troopers instructed her to remove her wig. When she complied, her natural hair was the exact same length, style, color, and texture as the wig. Like this one? Yes, it was like she took off her wig and it was the same hair underneath. (laughs) I love that they noted that. (laughs) Me too, it's my favorite detail. (laughs) Oh my God, that's brilliant. It's like like Scooby-Doo. They take off the mask and it's the same person underneath. Um, the only thing they noted was that her hair was a little dirtier than the wig. So I'm like, is this bizarre or genius? Like, don't feel like taking a shower. So just put the clean hair that looks exactly like your hair on top of the dirty hair. It's a time saver. It's a crazy. It's a crazy. <laughs> Maybe for your birthday, I'll get you a wig that looks exactly like your hair. I'm getting so many ideas the last couple episodes. Oh, my God. Uh-huh. <laughs> Whoa. Yep. Um, so when confronted with the news that her gun had been discovered and <laughs> the- <laughs> when confronted with the news that her wig is the same exact <laughs> style and look as her <laughs> hair. <laughs> I mean, they were just all like, what? What now? (laughs) Oh, I can't. That killed me. Oh, God. Okay. I just, you imagining them like unmasking (gasps) her and it's exactly the same underneath. And it's so weird. So weird. So weird. Um, So yes, when confronted with the news that her gun had been discovered, Mary Jane just doubled down that the weapon had been in the lake for the last 14 years. (laughs) As reported to McAvoy and Olinoff, here's how the interrogation went. I feel bad for people who are this dumb. (laughs) Maybe they shouldn't commit murders, then we wouldn't have to make fun of them. Yeah. Like, just don't kill people and you won't end up on a podcast with two white bitches making fun of you. 
just don't do it. Like, I'm not going to feel bad for you for like the shit we have to say about you when you murder people. <laughs> you made us, oh, you made us this way. Yeah. <laughs> it's your fault. It's your fault. <laughs> Guys, I can tell you that Andy and I are generally like not mean people, but if you kill people, we're going to get a little salty and bitchy about you. Yeah. Then we get to, then we get to talk about you. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so here's how the interrogation went. Oh, my God. They found my gun, she said. It, it is threw away years ago. How amazing. Hmm. I didn't think you'd locate it. I didn't think you would ever find it. Clearly. She was still keeping up the act, Egan thought, still pretending she had thrown the gun away 14 years ago, even though it was in near perfect condition when it was discovered by the lake. My God, Mary Jane said, acting surprised. Somebody used that gun. Oh my gosh. Egan couldn't help but feel a bit surprised. Confronted with proof that her gun had killed Rhonda, Mary Jane was already starting to spin a new story altogether that 14 years after she disposed of the gun, somebody had somehow found it and committed the murder with it. What? Well... (laughs) I can see why you called me in, Mary Jane said. That that it was from my gun. That's terrible. I mean, I thought it hit the water. 1994. I mean, I feel horrible. Somebody else used my gun. I wouldn't hit that girl. Oh, that or the pastor. Sorry, it was my gun, but I didn't use it. Bob, she said, looking into Egan's eyes. Bob, I am in terrible shape. Egan nodded. There are two dead people at the church, Mary Jane said. Egan and the other trooper Dietz looked at each other, puzzled at first, but soon Egan understood. Mary Jane was referring to herself. She was the second victim, an innocent woman accused of a crime she didn't commit, who was facing the prospect of life in prison because her gun had been used by somebody else. Egan felt disgusted that Mary Jane would compare herself to Rhonda in this way. For the next several minutes, Mary Jane continued to speak in short, disconnected bursts of thought. I am not a murderer. Killed poor Rhonda Smith. Just horrible. Doesn't look good for me. I wish I would have stayed away from the church. Terrible thing. I am hurting like crazy. Hook, line, and sinker. I had no reason to attack that girl. He is a liar. Can't deny it was used on Rhonda. Unbelievable. God, I'm glad you found my gun, just not under the circumstances. Okay, oh, oh my God, how the hell am I going to get out of this one? It is a bitch, Mary Jane blurted out suddenly, then laughed out loud. Something from Neverland coming to get me. I got the devil crawling on me. Most unfortunate. It's very Robert Durst. Oh, yes. Yeah. The, the incoherent rambling. The jinx, yeah. Yep. Yeah, she is unraveling. So Mary Jane hired two attorneys for her defense and she stayed in prison until her trial later that year. One of her only visitors was her brother, whom she felt had terribly betrayed her. Not only would Ed not confirm the time Mary Jane claimed to have left the house the day of Rhonda's murder, he also had turned over several bullet casing fragments he had recovered from his car that Mary Jane had been driving after her car had been impounded. The casings matched bullets used with a Rossi 38 revolver, of course, just like the ones 
that were in Rhonda Smith. Okay. And speaking of cars, the lab techs had finally submitted their report on Mary Jane's car and gunpowder residue was present on the driver's door handle, turn signal handle, as well as the driver's seat and steering wheel. Pretty incriminating for someone who claimed she hadn't fired a gun since 1994. Yep. I don't think the residue would last that long, honey. No. Trial began on October 20th, 2008, and Mary Jane kicked it off by being a whiny little bitch. Entering the courtroom, she told reporters, I'm a victim just like Rhonda. I'm the second victim from the church. Wow. Unbelievable. Wow. Mm -hmm. Wearing Rhonda's shoes. Oh my God, how did you guess that? Wait, no, I swear to God, she was wearing Rhonda's shoes. I was about to say that. You are lying. No, you are two for two this episode. Stop reading my mind. You're ruining all of my fun surprises. You knew they were hoarders. And now you know this bitch is wearing Rhonda's shoes. To a pre-trial court hearing, I guess that the uh, the troopers said the same thing. They hadn't been able to find one of the pairs of shoes that the Smiths had given um, Mary Jane. They had asked her, um, his, they'd asked her brother for them, but again, hoarders. So he didn't know. Yeah. Yeah. And they're like, wouldn't it be funny if she was wearing them? And then she came into the courtroom for the pretrial hearing wearing Rhonda's sneakers. Whoa. That's some balls right there. Yeah. That's insane. It's insane. I also think it goes along with the single white female thing. She wanted to be Rhonda. Yep. And like, even after she killed her, she's still wearing her shoes. Whoa. Yeah. So Mary Jane's attorneys attempted to have some of her statements to the police thrown out, particularly the ones in which she said she was having very sexual kind of feelings and warm feelings about Pastor Shreve's. The motion was denied, as was the motion to move the trial out of Bucks County. At trial, the prosecution painted Mary Jane as a woman consumed by jealousy, unrequited love, and revenge. They presented the sympathy notes and apple pie visit to Rhonda's parents as manipulative. And of course, they had the physical evidence of the gun, the ballistics reports, the bullet fragments found in Mary Jane's brother's car, and the gunpowder evidence in her own car. Pastor Shreves took the stand to deny the romance with either women and to demonstrate the lengths Mary Jane had gone to in her stalking of him. Mm -hmm. The defense portrayed Mary Jane as a sweet woman who had some odd behaviors and was being railroaded simply because she was unpopular at church. No. They contended with Rhonda's long history of mental illness that suicide was still a viable conclusion. And if not suicide, there was one witness who claimed Rhonda told her that she had been involved with a married man. And why hadn't the police investigated that angle? And they did. They just couldn't find any such married man that, you know, they went through her her phone records and stuff. They couldn't find her conversing with anyone. And there was like a couple guys that she, there was like one guy from her bipolar group um, that she was kind of dating, um, and another guy that she was talking to, like an ex-boyfriend. Uh, but both of them had like totally solid alibis and no motive for killing her. So there was no yeah. lover angle here. They also stuck with Mary Jane's absurd story that the gun had been found after 14 years underwater. 
And the prosecution countered with a chemistry professor who proved that there was no way the gun could have been in the condition it was if it had been underwater that long. Forensic pathologist Sarah Funk, it's spelled the same way as the... June K? Yeah, <laughs> I thought about you because of last episode. <laughs> Sarah Funk or Fune K. The bias, Fiend K. Yes. Also noped the defense's theory of suicide based on the stippling and the distance of the gun from Rhonda. I don't know if it's stippling or stipling. So guys, bear with me if I'm pronouncing this incorrectly. I mean, also, but like, if, even if they're saying it's suicide, where was the gun? Did she shoot herself and then take herself out to the lake to drop it off and then come back to the church to die? I know. I can't believe these people have to defend this woman. Ugh, it's just ridiculous. And Ed Fonder ended up testifying for the prosecution. And that seemed to like cause the defense to turn on him. In their closing arguments, they also suggested that Ed had actually killed Rhonda. Oh my God. Yeah, that because the bullet fragments were found in his car, maybe he killed Rhonda. But that's also ludicrous because Ed Fonder didn't know Rhonda. There was no evidence they had ever met. He went to a totally different church in New Jersey. And so it seems like the defense is just like taking a pile of spaghetti, throwing it against the wall, seeing if any of the strands They're like- <laughs> stick. Yeah. Like, this is a lot. That was a lot of crap right there. Yeah. Well, I think that the jury agreed that that was a lot of crap because just after the nine-day trial, the verdict came back as guilty and Mary Jane Fonder was sentenced to life in prison. Thank goodness. Mm-hmm. During sentencing, Jim and Dorothy read letters that Rhonda had written to them. So I'm going to read some of their words, which was really sweet. I am very fortunate because she shows me the truth when all I see is black, Dorothy Smith read. My mother is the best gift of all. Jim Smith read a letter in which his daughter thanked him for helping her through all her struggles. You taught me even with my mental illness, I can do anything anybody else can do, Jim read. You always dealt with me logically, and now that I am living in reality, I know how priceless that is. Sometimes I think giving up would be easier, but I still fight because I know I'm on a great team. Oh, it's devastating. Judge Boylan said it was the first time a family had ever read letters from a victim at one of her sentencings. I think that was the most eloquent and difficult thing you could have done, she told the Smiths. You shared with us a little bit of what the loss has been, not only to you, but to all of us. Then it was Mary Jane's turn to talk. She had declined to speak during the trial, but she wasn't going to pass up the opportunity again. She used her time to once again defiantly protest her innocence, as she had repeatedly to reporters. I did not kill Rhonda Smith, Mary Jane said before the judge. I thought she was a lovely girl, and I certainly wasn't jealous of this woman for any reason. I'm so sorry she's gone, but in the same respect, I will be gone too. I'm the second person in the church to be murdered by the system. Oh my God. Judges have like no patience for that. They're like, get the fuck out of here. That bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. You take, take your hair and your wig (laughs) and get out of here. Your hair and your wig and your murder victim's shoes. You get out of here. Get out of here. Get out of here. 
The Smiths, absent at the trial verdict because of Jim's health, were finally able to react publicly to the guilty verdict and Mary Jane's defiance. Speaking to reporters after the sentencing, Jim Smith said he took exception to Mary Jane calling herself the second murder victim. You're certainly not the second person that is injured, he said, his voice breaking. Our family was injured very much. Yeah, you fucking weasel. Weasel bitch. Okay, you glossed over the frozen dog. Oh, I never forgot to tell you. I did forget to tell you about the frozen dog. Okay, so when her dad went missing, they searched her home and they found a dead dog in the freezer. And they were like, okay, what the hell is going on with this dead dog in the freezer? And she's like, oh, it's my dad's dog. And it died. And they're like, and you put it in a freezer? And they're like, she's like, yeah, I didn't know what to do with it. So they took it for testing and the dog had been poisoned. But it was was proven that the poison was actually her diabetes medication. So she said that the dog accidentally ate her diabetes medication. Uh, Yeah, that's kind of an important detail. I'm glad you did the call back there. Because I feel like she could have, was the diabetes medication just poisonous to the dog or would it have been poisonous to someone else who doesn't have diabetes? Like, is that how she killed her dad? And then the dad gave some food to the dog? I don't know. Maybe. I mean, for sure, this bitch killed her dad. Whoa. Yeah. Also, there was somebody else told a story about the pastor before Pastor Shreves and how she like went up to him wearing a trench coat. And was like, hey, my cat passed away. Would you say a blessing for him? And the pastor's like, yeah, sure. And then she pulled a cat corpse out of her trench coat. Like she brought the dead cat to the church. And he was like, no, (laughs) no, go away with your dead cat, please. Bring it to a a vet or a crematorium. Oh, my God. Can you imagine that? She had it, like, against her body underneath a trench coat. She must have been pretty, like, lumpy to begin with. Oh, she, she was hiding a cat in she, there. She was lumpy as hell. It's like Fergie's, my my bumps, my lumps, my lady, lovely lady lumps or whatever, only, like, the opposite. She is not up at the gym working on her fitness. Oh, my God. This Wow. I'm glad you asked that. I think I wrote this one quick because we are approaching the end of the maternity episodes and and those were a key detail. So thank you for asking me about dead pets. You're welcome. Yes. It was a good interlude. It was the dead pet interlude. Has to be one every episode. Um, so one year after Mary Jane was sent to prison, she claimed to have a dream where Rhonda came to her and she oh, then, God. only then realized that she may have committed the murder. So she says that she may have done it during one of the emotional breakdowns she had been suffering since childhood. Mary Jane now claimed the stress and despair of not being invited to Rhonda's birthday party, which never happened, had triggered a week-long breakdown which may have culminated in her murdering Rhonda. She believed it had been compounded by the slap in the face when she called the church and found Rhonda had been hired to answer the phones, a job she had long lobbied for and been rejected from. Yeah, because you're crazy. Yeah, that's not Rhonda's problem that you are not getting the things you want in life. Wow. 
she still wouldn't say that she definitively remembered the shooting or that she absolutely 100% killed Rhonda. But she said her new nightmare, the surfacing memories and the evidence presented at trial had now convinced her that it seemed most likely she was indeed the murderer. Wow. Yeah, her trial attorneys were shocked by this new admission when they found out about it through the press uh, because she had never given them any indication that she had shot Rhonda nor that she had suffered these amnesia amnesia inducing mental breakdowns in the past had she divulged any of that information they could have explored an insanity defense or they could have like plead her down for a lesser you know sentence i'm glad that she didn't then yeah me too the new admission of probable guilt brought the faintest of silver linings to the smiths though nothing would ever bring their daughter back jim told the express times it makes us feel good the fact that she's coming out in the open with this I was asked by reporters at court at the time, and I said she has to think about what she did to Rhonda. And that's what she did. So it's interesting to me that she deployed this kind of wishy-washy half confession, because that's kind of exactly what she said about her dad. If you remember, she said, yeah, I don't think I did anything to my pop. I swear to God, I don't think I did. Maybe the drugs did something. Maybe I don't remember. She's doing the same thing. So, I mean, we're in agreement here. She offed her dad. Yeah, and she's dangerous to society. Absolutely. I mean, they said for sure that they think that if she had been let free, she probably would have killed the pastor at some point. Yeah. And it seems likely that maybe she would have gone after her brother because he testified against her. And it seems like that woman from Denny's, her manager, got away with her life, barely, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, crazy. Well, we'll never know for sure about her father because Mary Jane's secrets died along with her in June of 2018 when she passed away from cardiac arrest while in prison. Only weeks before, Bucks County PD had officially reopened the case into Ed Fonder Sr.'s disappearance. As far as I know, it remains open and unsolved. No. Yeah, they had just reopened the case when she passed away. Oh, no. Yeah, so that is the nutsballs story of Mary Jane Fonder, the priest stalk and murderer. Oh, God. The priest, sock, and murderer. Yeah, I think I'm going to call this one That's- Unrequited Loves a Killer. <laughs> Andy just visibly groaned at me. <laughs> oh, uh, my God. Yeah, crazy story. So if you guys liked that one, please definitely uh, give us a review and let us know. Let us know what you're thinking. And if you have any ideas uh, for future stories, I'm going to have some time while I am stuck breastfeeding a kiddo that I could read some true crime books. So definitely DM us on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter with suggestions or send us an email at lovers at lovemurder.love. In conclusion, wigs that are exactly like your natural hair underneath. Genius or bizarre or, or crazy.
crazy. Crazy. <laughs> Unfortunately, I am never going to be able to look at my grandma's pocketbook calendar <laughs> the same way after that Springer Spaniel notebook situation. No, and all of our grandmothers have those calendars. Yeah. You know they do. And as always, we are all just one crazy lady at church away from being murdered. Thanks for listening. 